I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is brought to you by Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders, the brand new podcast from HLN. This is the story of teens Abby Williams and Libby German. In February 2017, they went for a hike in Delphi, Indiana and vanished. Nearly 24 hours later, their bodies are found, and the police began working a crime scene they say they'd never unsee. Also found, Libby's phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who, three years on, remains a mystery. Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders begins on February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. It's January 21st, 2020. A month ago, the House of Representatives impeached President Donald Trump for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Now, the United States Senate must decide whether to convict the president and remove him from office. Chief Justice John Roberts has been sworn in and is presiding over the first day of the trial. I'm Susan Hennessy, the narrator from season one of The Report. You might be wondering what this has to do with the Mueller report, which we spent the first season of this podcast unpacking. It's true that the articles of impeachment don't focus on what Robert Mueller found. But where we are today is part of that same story. The facts are new, but once again, the president stands accused of seeking foreign assistance in a presidential election, of using the powers of his office to corruptly influence investigations and of obstructing the search for the truth. I'm Benjamin Wittes. I was the voice of the Robert Mueller report, but there is no report this time, no definitive document laying out what happened. Instead, there is a trial unfolding day by day before us. House impeachment managers will present the case against Trump. Then the president's representatives will present a defense. When that is over, witnesses may be called, but we don't know who or how many, and they may not be called. And then the Senate will have to vote. Two-thirds of the Senate are required to convict and remove a president from office, 67 votes. This podcast will let you hear what those senators hear. They have to sit there quietly without phones or laptops or anything else to read. They don't get to skip the boring parts. But you do, and we're going to make it easier on you. We'll cut out the many hours of testimony and procedural motions so you can just listen to the substance, to the report. You'll get a fair representation of what members hear each day, just in less time. This is unfolding in real time, so this podcast won't always be polished or put together perfectly, but you'll be able to hear the trial for yourself, not a highlight reel, not someone else's opinion of what mattered, but the actual trial, and you can make up your own mind. The following weeks will become an important part of American history, no matter what happens. The outcome isn't just about 67 votes. 
because every American faces the same fundamental decision as those hundred senators. Does the evidence show that President Trump is unfit to carry out the office of the commander-in-chief? This is the impeachment, day one. The sergeant-in-arms will make the proclamation. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has introduced a resolution structuring the proceeding. It would allow for 24 hours to each side, spread over three days, and reserve the question of witnesses and documents for after the conclusion of those presentations. And so, Mr. Chief Justice, I send a resolution to the desk and ask that it be read. The resolution is arguable by the parties for two hours equally divided. Then, Mr. Cipollone, your side may proceed first, and we'll be able to reserve rebuttal time if you wish. Now, the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, speaks in defense of McConnell's resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. My name is Pat Cipollone. I am here as counsel to the President of the United States. Our team is proud to be here representing President Trump. We support this resolution. It is a fair way to proceed with this trial. It is modeled on the Clinton resolution, which had 100 senators supporting it the last time this body considered an impeachment. It requires the House managers to stand up and make their opening statement and make their case. They have delayed bringing this impeachment to this House for 33 days, 33 days to this body. And it's time to start with this trial. It's a fair process. They will have the opportunity to stand up and make their opening statement. They will get 24 hours to do that. Then the president's attorneys will have a chance to respond. After that, all of you will have 16 hours to ask whatever questions you have of either side. Once that's finished and you have all of that information, we will proceed to the question of witnesses and some of the more difficult questions that will come before this body. We are in favor of this. We believe that once you hear those initial presentations, the only conclusion will be that the President has done absolutely nothing wrong and that these articles of impeachment do not begin to approach the standard required by the Constitution. And in fact, they themselves will establish nothing beyond those articles. You look at those articles alone and you will determine that there is absolutely no case. So we respectfully ask you to adopt this resolution so that we can begin with this process. It is long past time to start this proceeding, and we are here today to do it. And we hope that the House managers will agree with us and begin this proceeding today. We reserve the remainder of our time for rebuttal. Lead House impeachment manager Congressman Adam Schiff speaks in opposition to McConnell's resolution. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, and counsel for the President, the House managers on behalf of the House of Representatives rise in opposition to Leader McConnell's resolution. 
Let me begin by summarizing why. Last week, we came before you to present the articles of impeachment against the President of the United States for only the third time in our history. Those articles charge President Donald John Trump with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The misconduct set out in those articles is the most serious ever charged against a president. The first article, Abuse of Power, charges the president with soliciting a foreign power to help him cheat in the next election. Moreover, it alleges, and we will prove, that he sought to coerce Ukraine into helping him cheat by withholding official acts, two official acts, a meeting that the new president of Ukraine desperately sought with President Trump at the White House to show the world, and the Russians in particular, that the Ukrainian president had a good relationship with his most important patron, the President of the United States. And even more perniciously, President Trump illegally withheld almost $400 million in taxpayer-funded military assistance to Ukraine, a nation at war with our Russian adversary, to compel Ukraine to help him cheat in the election. Astonishingly, the President's trial brief filed yesterday contends that even if this conduct is proved, that there is nothing that the House or this Senate may do about it. It is the President's apparent belief that under Article 2, he can do anything he wants, no matter how corrupt, outfitted in gaudy legal clothing. And yet, when the founders wrote the impeachment clause, they had precisely this type of misconduct in mind. Conduct that abuses the power of his office for personal benefit, that undermines our national security, that invites foreign interference in our democratic process of an election. It is the trifecta of constitutional misconduct justifying impeachment. In Article 2, the President is charged with other misconduct that would likewise have alarmed the founders. The full, complete, and absolute obstruction of a co-equal branch of government, the Congress during the course of its impeachment investigation into the president's own misconduct. This is every bit as destructive of our constitutional order as the misconduct charged in the first article. If a president can obstruct his own investigation, if he can effectively nullify a power the Constitution gives solely to Congress, indeed the ultimate power, the ultimate power the Constitution gives to prevent presidential misconduct, then the president places himself beyond accountability, above the law. Cannot be indicted, cannot be impeached. It makes him a monarch, the very evil against which our Constitution and the balance of powers it carefully laid out was designed to guard against. Shortly, the trial in these charges will begin, and when it has concluded, you'll be asked to make several determinations. Did the House prove that the president abused his power by seeking to coerce a foreign nation to help him cheat in the next election? And did he obstruct the Congress in its investigation into his own misconduct by ordering his agencies and officers to cooperate, refuse to cooperate in any way, to refuse to testify, to refuse to answer subpoenas for documents and through every other means? I believe the most important decision in this case is the one you will make today. The most important question is the question you must answer today. Will the President and the American people get a fair trial? Will there be a fair trial?
I submit that this is an even more important question than how you vote on guilt or innocence because whether we have a fair trial will determine whether you have a basis to render a fair and impartial verdict. It is foundational. The structure upon which every other decision you will make must rest. If you only get to see part of the evidence, if you only allow one side or the other a chance to present their full case, your verdict will be predetermined by the bias in the proceeding. If the defendant is not allowed to introduce evidence of his innocence, it's not a fair trial. So too for the prosecution. If the House cannot call witnesses or introduce documents and evidence, it's not a fair trial. It's not really a trial at all. Americans all over the country are watching us right now. And imagine they're on grand jury or they're on jury duty. Imagine that the judge walks into that courtroom and says that she's been talking to the defendant. And at the defendant's request, the judge has agreed not to let the prosecution call any witnesses or introduce any documents. The judge and the defendant have agreed that the prosecutor may only read to the jury the dry transcripts of the grand jury proceedings. That's it. Has anyone on jury duty in this country ever heard a judge describe such a proceeding and call it a fair trial? Of course not. That's not a fair trial. It's a mockery of a trial. Under the Constitution, this proceeding the one we are in right now is the trial. This is not the appeal from a trial. You are not appellate court judges. Okay, one of you is. And unless this trial is gonna be different from every other impeachment trial or any other kind of trial for that matter, you must allow the prosecution and defense, the house manager and the president's lawyers to call relevant witnesses. You must subpoena documents that the president has blocked but which bear on his guilt or innocence. You must impartially do justice as your oath requires. So what does a fair trial look like in the context of impeachment? The short answer is it looks like every other trial. First, the resolution should allow the House managers to obtain documents that have been withheld. First, not last, because the documents will inform the decision about which witnesses are most important to call. And when the witnesses are called, the documentary evidence will be available and must be available to question them with. Any other order makes no sense. Next, the resolution should allow the House managers to call their witnesses. And then the President should be allowed to do the same and any rebuttal witnesses. And when the evidentiary portion of the trial ends, the parties argue the case. You deliberate and render a verdict. If there's a dispute as to whether a particular witness is relevant or material to the charges brought, under the Senate rules, the Chief Justice would rule on the issue of materiality. Why should this trial be different than any other trial? The short answer is it shouldn't. But Leader McConnell's resolution would turn the trial process on its head. His resolution requires the House to prove its case without witnesses, without documents, and only after it's done will such questions be entertained with no guarantee that any witnesses or any documents will be allowed even then. That process makes no sense. So what is the harm of waiting until the end of the trial, of kicking the can down the road 
on the question of documents and witnesses. Besides the fact it's completely backwards, trial first, then evidence, besides the fact that the documents would inform the decision on which witnesses and help in their questioning, the harm is this. You will not have any of the evidence the president continues to conceal throughout most or all of the trial. And although the evidence against the president is already overwhelming, you may never know the full scope of the president's misconduct or those around him. And neither will the American people. The charges here involve the sacrifice of our national security at home and abroad and a threat to the integrity of the next election. If there are additional remedial steps that need to be taken after the president's conviction, the American people must know about it. But if, as a public already jaded by experience has come to suspect, this resolution is merely the first step of an effort orchestrated by the White House to rush the trial, hide the evidence, and render a fast verdict, or worse, a fast dismissal, to make the presence go away as quickly as possible to cover up his misdeeds, then the American people will be deprived of a fair trial and may never learn just how deep the corruption of this administration goes or what other risks to our security and elections remain hidden. The harm will also endure for this body. If the Senate allows the president to get away with such extensive obstruction, it will affect the Senate's power of subpoena and oversight just as much as the House. The Senate's ability to conduct oversight will be beholden to the desires of this president and future presidents, whether he or she decides they want to cooperate with a Senate investigation or another impeachment inquiry and trial. Our system of checks and balances will be broken. Presidents will become accountable to no one. Now, it has been reported that Leader McConnell has already got the votes to pass this resolution, the text of which we did not see until last night and which has been changed even moments ago. And they say that Leader McConnell is a very good vote counter. Nonetheless, I hope that he's wrong. Let's turn to the precise terms of the resolution, the history of impeachment trials, and what fairness and impartiality require. Although we have many concerns about the resolution, I will begin with its single biggest flaw. The resolution does not ensure that subpoenas will, in fact, be issued for additional evidence that the Senate and the American people should have, and that the President continues to block to fairly decide the President's guilt or innocence. Moreover, it guarantees that subpoenas will not be issued now, when they would be most valuable to the Senate, the parties, and the American people. According to the resolution the leader has introduced, first, the Senate receives briefs and filings from the parties. Next, it hears lengthy presentations from the House and the President. Now, my colleagues, the President's lawyers, have described this as opening statements. But let's not kid ourselves. That is the trial that they contemplate. The opening statements are the trial. They'll either be most of the trial or they'll be all the trial. If the Senate votes to deprive itself of witnesses and documents, the opening statements will be the end of the trial. So to say, let's just have the opening statements and then we'll see means let's have the trial. 
and maybe we can just sweep this all under the rug. So you'll hear these lengthy presentations from the House. There will be a question and answer period for the senators. And then, and only then, after essentially the trial is over, after the briefs have been filed, after the arguments have been made, after the senators exhaust all their questions, only then will the Senate consider whether to subpoena crucial documents and witness testimony that the President has desperately tried to conceal from this Congress and the American people. Documents and witness testimony that, unlike the Clinton trial, the Senate deserves to see the documents from the White House, the State Department, the Office of Management and Budget, the Department of Defense. These agencies already should have collected and at least preserved these documents in response to House subpoenas. Indeed, in some cases, agencies have already produced documents in FOIA lawsuits, albeit in heavily redacted form. And witnesses with direct knowledge or involvement should be heard. That includes the President's acting Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, his former National Security Advisor, John Bolton, who has publicly offered to testify, two senior officials implementing, integral to implementing the President's freeze on Ukraine's military aid, also have very relevant testimony. Why not hear it? Robert Blair, who serves as Mulvaney's senior advisor, Michael Duffy, a senior official at OMB, and other witnesses with direct knowledge that we reserve the right to call later, but these witnesses with whom we wish to begin the trial. Last month, President Trump made clear that he supported having senior officials testify before the Senate during his trial, declaring that he would love to have Secretary Pompeo, Mr. Mulvaney, now former Secretary Perry, and quote, many other people testify in the Senate trial. I would love to have Mike Pompeo. I'd love to have Mitch. I'd love to have uh, Rick Perry uh, and many other people testify. The Senate has an opportunity to take the president up on his offer to make his senior aides available, including Mr. Mulvaney and Secretaries Perry and Pompeo. But now the president is changing his tune. The bluster of wanting these witnesses to testify is over. Notwithstanding the fact that he has never asserted a claim of privilege during the course of the House impeachment proceedings, he threatens to invoke one now in a last-ditch effort to keep the rest of the truth from coming out. The President sends his lawyers here to breathlessly claim that these witnesses or others cannot possibly testify because it involves national security. Never mind that it was the President's actions in withholding military aid from an ally at war that threatened our national security in the first place. Never mind that the most impeachable, serious offenses will always involve national security because they will involve other nations and that misconduct. In the name of national security, he would hide graphic evidence of his dangerous misconduct. The only question is, and it is the question raised by this resolution, will you let him? Last year, President Trump said that Article II of the Constitution will allow him to do anything he wanted. And evidently believing that Article II empowered him to denigrate and defy a co-equal branch of government, he also declared that he will fight all subpoenas. Let's, let's hear the President's own words. Then I have an Article II where I have the right to do whatever I want as President. Well, we're fighting all the subpoenas. True to his pledge to obstruct Congress, when President Trump faced an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives, he ordered the executive branch to defy every single request on every single subpoena. 
He issued this order through his White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, on October 8, the same counsel that stood before you a moment ago to defend the President's misconduct. He then affirmed it again at a rally on October 10. Following President Trump's categorical order, we never received key documents and communications. It is important to note in refusing to respond to Congress, the President did not make any, any formal claim of privilege ever. Instead, Mr. Cipollone's letter stated, in effect, that the President would withhold all evidence in the executive branch unless the House surrendered to demands that would effectively place President Trump in charge of the inquiry into his own misconduct. Needless to say, that was a non-starter and designed to be so. The President was determined to obstruct Congress no matter what we did, and his conduct since his attacks on the impeachment inquiry, his attacks on witnesses, have affirmed that the President never had any intention to cooperate under any circumstance. And why? Because the evidence and testimony he conceals would only further prove his guilt. The innocent do not act this way. Simply stated, this trial should not reward the President's obstruction by allowing him to control what evidence is seen and when it is seen and what evidence will remain hidden. The documents the President seeks to conceal include White House records, including records about the President's unlawful hold on military aid, State Department records, including text messages and WhatsApp messages exchanged by the State Department and Ukrainian officials and notes to file written by career professionals as they saw the President's scheme unfold in real time. OMB records demonstrating efforts to fabricate an after-the-fact rationale for the President's orders and showing internal objections that the President's orders violated the law. Defense Department records reflecting bafflement and alarm that the President suspended military aid to a key security partner without explanation. Many of the President's aides have also followed his orders and refused to testify. These include central figures in the impeachment inquiry, including White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and many others with relevant testimony, like Robert Blair and Michael Duffy. Mr. Blair, who serves as a senior advisor to Acting Chief of Staff Mulvaney, worked directly with Mr. Duffy, a political appointee in the Office of Management and Budget, to carry out the President's order to freeze vital military and security assistance to Ukraine. The Trump administration has refused to disclose their communications, even though we know from written testimony, public reporting, and even Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that they were instrumental in implementing the hold and extending it at the President's express direction, even, even as career officials warned accurately that doing so would violate the law. The President has also made the insupportable claim that the House should have enforced its subpoenas in court and allowed the President to delay his impeachment for years. If we had done so, we would have abdicated our constitutional duty to act on the overwhelming facts before us and the evidence the President was seeking to cheat in the next election. We could not engage in a deliberately protracted court process while the President continued to threaten the sanctity of our elections. Resorting to the courts is also inconsistent with a constitution that gives the House the sole power of impeachment. If the House were compelled to exhaust 
all legal remedies before impeaching the president. It would interpose the courts or the decision of a single judge between the House and the power to impeach. Moreover, it would invite the president to prevent his own impeachment by endlessly litigating the matter in court, appealing every judgment, engaging in every frivolous motion or device. Indeed, in the case of Don McGahn, the president's lawyer who was ordered to fire the special counsel and lie about it, he was subpoenaed by the House in April last year, and there is still no final judgment. A president may not defeat impeachment or accountability by engaging in endless litigation. Instead, it's been the long practice of the House to compile core evidence necessary to reach a reasoned decision about whether to impeach and then to bring the case here to the Senate for a full trial. That is exactly what we did here with an understanding that the Senate has its own power to compel documents and testimony. It would be one thing if the House had shown no interest in documents or witnesses during its investigation, although even there, the House has the sole right to determine its proceedings, as long as it makes the full case to the House, as it did. But it is quite another when the President is the cause of his own complaint, when the President withholds witnesses and documents and then attempts to rely on his own noncompliance to justify further concealment. President Trump made it crystal clear we would never see a single document or a single witness when he declared, as we just watched, that he would fight all subpoenas. As a matter of history and precedent, it would be wrong to assert that the Senate is unable to obtain and review new evidence during a Senate trial, regardless of why evidence was not produced in the House. You can and should insist on receiving all of the evidence so you can render impartial justice and can earn the confidence of the public in the Senate's willingness to hold a fair trial. Under the Constitution, the Senate does not just vote on impeachments. It does not just debate them. Instead, it is commanded by the Constitution to try all cases of impeachment. If the founders intended for the House to try the matter and the Senate to consider an appeal based on the cold record from the other chamber, they would have said so. But they did not. Instead, they gave us the power to charge and you the power to try all impeachments. The framers chose their language and the structure for a reason. As Alexander Hamilton said, the Senate is given awful discretion in matters of impeachment. The Constitution thus speaks to senators in their judicial character as a court for the trial of impeachments. It requires them to aim at, aim at real demonstrations of innocence or guilt, and it requires them to do so by holding a trial. The Senate has repeatedly subpoenaed and received new documents, often many of them while adjudicating cases of impeachment. Moreover, the Senate has heard witness testimony in every one of the 15 Senate trials full Senate trials in the history of this republic, including those for Presidents Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Over time, witnesses will tell their stories in books and film. The truth will come out. The question is, will it come out in time? And what answer shall we give if we did not pursue the truth now and let it remain hidden until it was too late? to consider on the profound issue of the president's guilt or innocence. 
There are many overlapping reasons for voting against this resolution, but they all converge on a single idea. Fairness. The trial should be fair to the House, which has been wrongly deprived of evidence by a president who wishes con to conceal it. It should be fair to the president, who will not benefit from an acquittal or dismissal if the trial is not viewed as fair, if it is not viewed as impartial, and fair to you senators who are tasked with the grave responsibility of determining whether to convict or acquit and should do so with the benefit of all of the facts. And fair to the American people who deserve the full truth and who deserve representatives who will seek it on their behalf. And with that, Mr. Chief Justice, I yield back. Here's the President's counsel, Jay Sekulow. Senator Schumer said earlier today that the eyes of the founders are on these proceedings. Indeed, that's true. But it's the heart of the Constitution that governs these proceedings. And what we just heard from Manager Schiff, courts have no role, privileges don't apply, what happened in the past, we should just ignore. In fact, Manager Schiff just said, try to summarize my colleague's defense of the president. He said, not in those words, of course, which is not the first time Mr. Schiff has put words into transcripts that did not exist. Mr. Schiff also talked about a trifecta. I'll give you a trifecta. During the proceedings that took place before the Judiciary Committee, the President was denied the right to cross-examine witnesses. The President was denied the right to access evidence. And the President was denied the right to have counsel present at hearings. That's a trifecta. A trifecta that violates the Constitution of the United States. On June 28, 2012, Attorney General Eric Holder became the first United States Attorney General to be held in both civil and criminal contempt. Why? Because President Obama asserted executive privilege. With respect to the Holder contempt proceedings, Mr. Manager Schiff wrote, the White House's assertion of privilege is backed by decades of precedent that has recognized the need for the President and his senior advisors to receive candid advice and information from their top aides. Indeed, that's correct. Not because Manager Schiff said it, but because the Constitution requires it. Mr. Manager Nadler said that the effort to hold Eric Holder, Attorney General Holder, in contempt for refusing to comply with various subpoenas was, quote, politically motivated, and Speaker Pelosi called the Holder matter, and I quote, more than, a little more than a witch hunt. The President's opponents, in their rush to impeach, have refused to wait for complete judicial review. That was their choice. Speaker Pelosi clearly expressed her impatience and contempt for judicial proceedings when she said, we cannot be at the mercy of the courts. Think about that for a moment. We cannot be at the mercy of the courts. So take Article 3 of the United States Constitution, remove it.
We're acting as if the courts are an improper venue to determine constitutional issues of this magnitude? That is why we have courts. That is why we have a federal judiciary. It was interesting when Professor Turley testified before the House Judiciary Committee in front of Mr. Nadler's committee. He said, we have three branches of government, not two. If you impeach a president, if you make a high crime and misdemeanor out of going to courts and abuse of power, it's your abuse of power. You know, it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. There's a lot more than an abuse of power if you say the courts don't apply. Constitutional principles don't apply. Do you want to know about due process? I'll tell you about due process. Here's White House Counsel Pat Cipollone again. Never before in the history of our country has a president been confronted with this kind of impeachment proceeding in the House. It wasn't conducted by the Judiciary Committee. Now, Mr. Nadler, when he applied for that job, told his colleagues when they took over the House that he was really good at impeachment. But what happened was the proceedings took place in a basement of the House of Representatives. The president was forbidden from attending. The president was not allowed to have a lawyer present. In every other impeachment proceeding, the president has been given a minimal, of, minimal due process. Nothing here. Not even Mr. Schiff's Republican colleagues were allowed into the skiff. Information was selectively leaked out. Witnesses were threatened. Good public servants were told that they would be held in contempt. They were told that they were obstructing. Now let me tell you another story. There's a man named Charlie Kupperman. He is the deputy national security advisor. He is the number two to John Bolton. Because you have to remember, Mr. Schiff wants you to forget, but you have to remember how we got here. They threatened him. They sent him a subpoena. Mr. Kupperman did what any American should be allowed to do, used to be allowed to do. He was forced to get a lawyer. He was forced to pay for that lawyer. And he went to court. Mr. Schiff doesn't like courts. He went to court. And he said, Judge, tell me what to do. I have obligations that frankly rise to the, what the Supreme Court has called the apex of executive privilege in the area of national security. And then I have a subpoena from Mr. Schiff. What do I do? You know what Mr. Schiff did? did? Mr. Kupperman went to the judge and the House said, never mind, we withdraw the subpoena, we promise not to issue it again. And then they come here and they ask you to do the work that they refuse to do for themselves. They ask you to trample on executive privilege. Now, would they ever suggest that the executive could determine on its own what the speech or debate clause means? Of course not. Would they ever suggest 
that the House could invade the discussions that the Supreme Court has behind closed doors? I hope not. But they come here and they ask you to do what they refuse to do for themselves. They had a court date. And they withdrew the subpoena, they evaded a decision, and they're asking you to become complicit in that evasion of the courts. It's ridiculous. And we should call it out for what it is. Obstruction for going to court? It's an act of patriotism to defend the constitutional rights of the president. Because if they can do it to the president, they could do it to any of you, and they could do it to the, any American citizen. And that's wrong. A partisan impeachment is like stealing an election. And that's exactly what we have. We have, talk about the framers' worst nightmare. It's a partisan impeachment that they've delivered to your doorstep in an election year. Some of you are upset because you should be in Iowa right now. But instead, we're here, and they're not ready to go. And it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And the American people won't stand for it, I'll tell you that right now. They're not here to steal one election. They're here to steal two elections. It's buried in the small print of their ridiculous articles of impeachment. They want to remove the President Trump from the ballot. They won't tell you that. They don't have the guts to say it directly. But that's exactly what they're here to do. They're asking the Senate to attack one of the most sacred rights we have as American, Americans, the right to choose our president in an election year. It's never been done before. It shouldn't be done before. Now, the reason it's never been done is because no one ever thought that it would be a good idea for our country, for our children, for our grandchildren to try to remove a president from a ballot, to deny the American people the right to vote based on a fraudulent investigation conducted in secret with no rights. Well, I could go on and on, but my point is very simple. It's long past time that we start this so we can end this ridiculous charade and go have an election. Hey everyone, Barbara McDonald here, host of the brand new podcast from HLN, Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders. In February of 2017, Abigail Williams and Liberty German went for a hike on a warm day in Delphi, Indiana, and vanished. Nearly 24 hours later, their bodies are found in the woods, Police began working a crime scene they say they'll never unsee. They soon find Libby's cell phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who three years later remains on the loose. Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders begins February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Here is Zoe Lofgren speaking in defense of the Schumer Amendment. The president has improperly blocked 
Senator Schumer's amendment does just that. The amendment authorizes a subpoena for White House documents that are directly relevant to this case. These documents focus on the president's scheme to strong arm Ukraine, to announce an investigation into his political opponent, to interfere with the 2020 election. The documents will reveal the extent of the White House's coordination with the president's agents, such as Ambassador Sondland and Rudy Giuliani, uh, who pushed the president's so-called drug deal on Ukrainian officials. The documents will also show us how key players inside the White House, such as the president's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and his deputy, Robert Blair, helped set up the deal by executing the freeze on all military aid and withholding a promised visit to the White House. The documents include records of the people who may have objected to this scheme, such as Ambassador Bolton. This is an important impeachment case against the president. The most important documents are going to be at the White House. The documents Senator Schumer's amendment targets would provide more clarity and context about President Trump's scheme. The amendment pre prevents the president from hiding evidence, as he has previously tried to do. Now, the House subpoenaed these documents as part of the impeachment inquiry, but the president completely rejected this in every document subpoena from the House. As powerful as our evidence is, and make no mistake, it overwhelmingly approves, uh, approves his guilt. We did not receive a single document from the executive branch agency, including the White House itself. Recent revelations from press reports, Freedom of Information Act requests, and additional witnesses, such as Lev Parnas, underscore how relevant these documents and therefore why the president has been so desperate to hide them and his misconduct from Congress and from the American people. A trial without all the relevant evidence is not a fair trial. It would be wrong for you senators acting as judges to be deprived of relevant evidence of the president's offenses when you are judging these most serious charges. It would also be unfair to the American people who overwhelmingly believe the president should produce all relevant documents and evidence. Now, documentary evidence is used in all trials for a simple reason. As the uh, story goes, the documents don't lie. Documents give objective, real-time insight into the events under investigation. The need for such evidence is especially important in Senate impeachment trials. More than 200 years of Senate practice make clear that documents are generally the first order of business. They've presented, uh, been presented to the Senate before witnesses take the stand in great volume to ensure the Senate has the evidence it needs to evaluate the case. Now, documentary evidence in Senate trials has never been limited to the documents sent by the House. The Senate, throughout its existence, has exercised its authority pursuant to its clear rules of procedure to subpoena documents at the outset of a trial. We don't know with certainty what the documents will say. We simply want the truth, what, whatever that truth may be. So, so do the American people. They want to know the truth. 
and so should everybody in this chamber, regardless of our party affiliation. There are key reasons why this amendment is necessary. We'll begin by walking through the history and precedent of Senate impeachment trials. I'll let you know about the House's efforts to get the documents, which were met by the President and his administration's categorical commitment to hide all the evidence at all costs. And we'll address the specific need for these subpoenaed White House documents. I'll tell you why these documents are needed now, not at the end of the trial, in order to ensure a full, fair trial based on a complete evidentiary record. The documents sought are directly relevant to the President's misconduct. The White House is concealing documents involving officials who have direct knowledge of key events at the heart of this trial. This isn't just a guess. We know these documents exist from the witnesses who testified in the House and from other public release of documents. And let's walk through those specific documents that the White House should send to the Senate. They include, among other documents, uh, relating to President Trump's direct communications with President Zelensky, President Trump's request for political investigations, including communications with Rudy Giuliani, Ambassador Sondland, and others, President Trump's unlawful hold of the $391 million of military aid, concerns that White House officials reported to NSC legal counsel in real time, the President's decision to recall Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch from Ukraine, the first set of documents the Senate should get about President Trump's communication with the President of Ukraine uh, would include the phone calls on April 21st and July 25th, as well as the September 25th, 2019 meeting with President Zelensky in New York. This amendment is supported by 200 years of precedent. It's needed to prevent the President from continuing to hide the evidence, and that's why the specific documents requested are so important for this case. It's faithful to the Constitution's provision that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Here's Pat Philbin, Deputy White House Counsel, speaking in opposition to the Schumer Amendment. Chief Justice, Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, Senators, it's remarkable that after taking the action of the breathtaking gravity of voting to impeach the duly elected President of the United States, and after saying for weeks that they had overwhelming evidence to support their case, the first thing that the House managers have done upon arriving finally in this chamber after waiting for 33 days is to say, well, actually, we need more evidence. We're not ready to present our case. We need to have subpoenas and we need to do more discovery because we don't have the evidence we need to support our case. This is stunning. It's a stunning admission of the inadequate and broken process that the House Democrats ran in this impeachment inquiry that failed to compile a record to support their charges. It's stunning that they don't have the evidence they need to present their case and that they don't really have a case. If a litigant showed up in any court in this country on the day of trial and said to the judge, actually, Your Honor, we're not ready to go. We need more discovery. We need to do some more subpoenas. We need to do some more work. They'd be thrown out of court, and the lawyers would probably be sanctioned. 
This is not the sort of proceeding that this body should condone. Now, we've just heard that this is so important. Let's consider what's really at issue in the resolution here and the amendment. It's a matter of timing. It's a matter of when this body will consider whether there should be witnesses or subpoenas for documents. Why is it that the managers, the House managers, are so afraid to have to present their case, present, remember, they've had weeks of a process that they entirely controlled. They had 17 witnesses who testified first in secret and then in public. They've compiled a record with thousands of pages of reports, and they're apparently afraid to just make a presentation based on the record that they compiled and then have you decide whether there's any there there, whether there's anything worth trying to talk to more witnesses about. Why is it that they can't wait a few days to make their presentation on everything they've been preparing for weeks and then have that issue considered? The majority leader is recognized. I send a motion to the desk to table the amendment and ask for the yeses and nays. During this phase of the proceeding, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is proposing a series of amendments to address what the Democratic caucus believes are deficiencies in the McConnell amendments. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is moving to table each of these amendments, killing the motion. The question is on the motion to table. Is there a sufficient second? There is. The clerk will call the roll. These votes are repeatedly falling on party lines. 53 yes votes and 47 no votes. The yeas are 53, the nays are 47. The amendment is tabled. Another amendment is being proposed. Here is House Impeachment Manager Congresswoman Val Dennings. The first article of impeachment charges the president with using the power of his office to solicit and pressure Ukraine to announce investigations that everyone in this chamber knows to be bogus. The president didn't even care if an investigation was actually conducted, just that it was announced. Why? Because this was for his own personal and political benefit. The first article further charges that the president did so with corrupt motives and that his use of power for personal gain harmed the national security of the United States. As the second article of impeachment charges, the president sought to conceal evidence of this conduct. He did so by ordering his entire administration, every office, every agency, every official to defy every subpoena served in the House impeachment inquiry. No president in history has ever done anything like this. Many presidents have expressly acknowledged that they couldn't do anything like this. President Trump did not take these extreme steps to hide evidence of his innocence or to protect the institution of the presidency. As a career law enforcement officer, I have never seen anyone 
take such extreme steps to hide evidence allegedly proving his innocence. And I do not find that here today. The president is, is engaged in this cover-up because he is guilty, and he knows it. And he knows that the evidence he is concealing will only further demonstrate his culpability. Notwithstanding this effort to stonewall our inquiry, the House amassed powerful evidence of the president's high crimes and misdemeanors. 17 witnesses, 130 hours of testimony combined with the president's own admissions on phone calls and in public comments, confirmed and corroborated by hundreds of texts, emails, and documents. Much of that evidence came from patriotic, nonpartisan, decorated officials in the State Department. They are brave men and women who honored their obligations under the law and gave testimony required by congressional subpoena in the face of the president's taunts and insults. These officials described the president's campaign to induce and pressure Ukraine to announce political investigations. His use of $391 million of vital military aid, taxpayer money appropriated on a bipartisan basis by Congress as leverage to force Ukraine to comply, and his withholding of a meeting desperately sought by the newly elected president of Ukraine. This testimony was particularly compelling because the State Department is at the very center of President Trump's wrongdoing. We heard firsthand from diplomatic officials who saw up close and personnel, personal, what was happening and who immediately, immediately sounded the alarms. Ambassador William Taylor, who returned to Ukraine in June of last year as acting ambassador, text other State Department officials I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Ambassador to the Ukraine, uh, European Union, Gordon Sondland, who was delegated authority over Ukraine matters by none other than President Trump, testified, we knew these investigations were important to the president and we followed the president's orders. And David Holmes, a senior official at the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv, said it was made clear that some action on a Burisma-Biden investigation was a condition for an Oval Office meeting. During their testimony, many of these State Department officials described specific documents including text messages, emails, former diplomatic cables, and notes that would corroborate their testimony and shed additional light on President Trump's corrupt scheme. 
For instance, Ambassador Taylor, who raised concerns that military aid had been conditioned on the President's demand for political investigations, described a little notebook in which he would take notes on conversations he had with key officials. Ambassador Sondland referred by date and recipient to emails regarding the President's demand that Ukraine announce political investigations. As we'll see through emails that were sent to some of President Trump's tax top advisors, including acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, and Secretary of Energy Rick Perry. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, who oversaw Ukraine policy matters in Washington for the State Department, wrote at least four memos to file to document concerning conduct he witnessed or heard. And Ambassador Kurt Volker, the special representative for Ukraine negotiations, provided evidence that he and other American officials communicated with high-level Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky himself, via text message and WhatsApp about the president's improper demands and how Ukrainian officials would respond to them. Based on the testimony we received and on evidence that has since emerged all of these documents and others that we will describe bear directly on the allegations set forth in the first article of impeachment. They would help complete our understanding of how the president's scheme unfolded in real time. They would support the conclusion that senior Ukrainian officials understood the corrupt nature of President Trump's demand, and they would further expose the extent to which Secretary Pompeo, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and other senior Trump administration officials were aware of the president's plot and helped carry it out. We're not talking about a burdensome number of documents. We're talking about a specific, discrete set of materials held by the State Department. Documents the State Department has already con collected in response to our subpoena, but has never produced. We know these materials exist. We know they are relevant, and we know the president is desperately trying to conceal them. As I will describe, the Senate should subpoena the following. Number one, WhatsApp and other text message communications. Two, emails, three diplomatic cables, and four notes. Given the significance and relevance of these documents, the House requested that they be provided. When these requests were denied, when our requests were denied, the House issued subpoenas commanding that the documents be turned over. But at the President's direction, the Department of State unlawfully defied that subpoena. And I stand here now, as I stand here now, the State Department has all these documents in its possession, 
but refuses based on the president's order to let them see the light of day. We know that the department is deliberately, deliberately concealing these records at the direction of the president, and we know that they could contain highly relevant testimony about the president's plan to condition official presidential acts on the announcements of investigations for his own personal and political gain. We know this not only from testimony, but also because Ambassador Volker was able to provide us with a small but telling selection of his WhatsApp messages. Those records confirm with a full review of these texts and WhatsApp messages from relevant officials would help to paint a vivid firsthand picture of statements, decisions, concerns, and beliefs held by important players of events unfolding in real time. This body cannot permit him to hide all the evidence while disingenuously insisting on lawsuits that he doesn't actually think we can file, ones that he knows won't be resolved until after the election he is trying to cheat to win. Instead, to honor your oaths to do impartial justice, we urge each senator to support a subpoena to the State Department. And that subpoena should be issued now, at the beginning of the trial, rather than at the end, so these documents can be reviewed and their importance weighed by the parties, the Senate, and by the American people. That is how things work in every courtroom in the nation. And it is how they should work here, especially because the stakes, as you all know, are so high. The truth is there. Facts are stubborn things. The president is trying to hide it. This body should not surrender to his obstruction by refusing to demand a full record. That is why the House managers support this amendment. Here is the President's counsel, Jay Seculo. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, the manager said facts are a stubborn thing. Let me give you some facts. It's from the transcripts. Ambassador Sondland actually testified unequivocally that the president did not tie aid to investigations. Instead, that he acknowledged any leak he had suggested was based entirely on his own speculation, unconnected to any conversation with the president. Here's the question. What about the aid? Ambassador Volker says that they were tied, that the aid was not tied. Answer, I didn't say that they were conclusively tied either. I said I was presuming it. Question. Okay. And so the president never told you they were tied. Answer. That is correct. Question. So your testimony and Ambassador Volker's testimony is consistent. 
and the President did not tie investigations, aid to investigations? Answer, that is correct. Ambassador Sondland also testified that he asked President Trump directly about these issues, and the President explicitly told them that he did not want anything from Ukraine. I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Similar comments were made to Senator Johnson. Those are the facts. Stubborn, but that's the facts. No one is above the law. Here's the law. As every member of Congress knows, undoubtedly aware, separate from even state secret privileges, is the presidential communication executive privilege to communications and performance of a president's responsibilities. Here is Adam Schiff again. Uh, Council said, well, <clears throat> the House would like to call John Bolton, but the House did not seek his testimony during its investigation. Well, first of all, we did. We invited John Bolton to testify, and you know what he told us? I'm not coming. And if you subpoena me, I will sue you. That was his answer. I will sue you. Mr. Bolton is represented by the same lawyer who represents Dr. Kupperman, who actually did sue us when he was subpoenaed. So we knew that uh, John Bolton would make good on that threat. The Trump Justice Department is in court in that case and in other cases arguing Congress cannot go to court to enforce its subpoenas. So when they say something about lawyer lawsuits, and they say there's nothing wrong with the House suing to get these witnesses to show up, and they should have sued to get them to show up. Their own other lawyers are in court saying the House has no such right. They're in court saying you can't have lawyer lawsuits. So that argument cannot be made in both directions. What's more, in the Kupperman litigation, uh, I'm sorry, in the McGahn litigation, which tested the same bogus theory of absolute immunity. In that lawsuit, Judge Jackson ruled on that very recently when they made the same bogus claim, he's absolutely immune from showing up. And the judge says that's nonsense. There's no support for that, none in the Constitution, none in the case law that is made out of whole cloth. But you know, the judge said something more that was very interesting. Because what we urge John Bolton's lawyer is, you don't need to file a lawsuit. Dr. Kupperman, you don't need to file a lawsuit. There's one already filed involving Don McGahn that's about to be decided. So unless your real purpose here is delay, unless your real purpose here is to avoid testimony and you just wish to give the impression of a willingness to come forward, you just want to have the court's blessing, if that's really true, agree to be bound by the McGahn decision. Well, of course they were not willing because they didn't want to testify. Now, for whatever reason, John Bolton is now willing to testify. I don't know why that is. I, I can't speak to his motivation. But I can tell you he's willing to come now, if you're willing to hear him. But of course, they weren't willing to be bound by that court decision in McGann. There were also comments made about Ambassador Volker's testimony by Mr. Sekulow. And it was along these lines. Master Volker said the president never told him that the aid was being conditioned or the meeting was being conditioned on Ukraine doing these sham investigations. Well, I guess that's case closed. Unless the president told 
everyone called him into their office and said, hey, I'm going to tell you now, and then I'm going to tell you now. If he didn't tell everyone, I guess it's case closed. Well, you know who the president did tell, among others? He told Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney went out on national television and said, yes, they discussed it. This investigation, this Russian narrative that uh, it wasn't Ukraine that intervened in 2016, it was Russia. I'm sorry, it wasn't Russia, it was Ukraine. Yes, that bogus 2016 theory, yes, they discussed it. Yes, that was part of the reason why they withheld the money. And when a reporter said, well, you're kind of describing a quid pro quo, his answer was, yeah, get used to it or get over it. We do it all the time. Now, they haven't said they want to hear from McMulvaney. I wonder why. The president did talk to McMulvaney about it. Wouldn't you like to hear what McMulvaney has to say? I mean, if you really want to get to the bottom of this, if they're really challenging the fact that the president conditioned $400 million of military aid to an ally at war, if Mick Mulvaney has already said publicly that he talked to the president about it, and this is part of the reason why, don't you think you should hear from him? Don't you think impartial justice requires you to hear from him? Now, you're going to have 16 hours to ask questions. You're going to have 16 hours. That's a long time to ask questions. Wouldn't you like to be able to ask about the documents in that 16 hours? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, uh, counsel for the president, what, what did Mick Mulvaney mean when he emailed so-and-so and said such-and-such? What's your explanation for that? Because that seems to be pretty damning evidence of exactly what the House is saying here. What's your, what's your explanation of that, Mr. Sekulow? What's your explanation? Wouldn't you like to be able to ask about the documents? Or ask the House, Mr. Schiff, what about this text message? Doesn't that suggest such is what the President is arguing? Wouldn't you like to be able to ask me that question or my colleagues? I think you would. I think you should. But the, the backwards way this resolution is drafted, you get 16 hours to ask questions about documents you've never seen. And then you know what's more? If you do decide at that point after the trial is essentially over that you do want to see the documents after all, and the documents are produced, you don't get another 16 hours. You don't get 16 minutes. You don't get 16 seconds to ask about those documents. Does that make any sense to you? Does that make any sense at all? There's going to come a time where you and this body are going to want to subpoena that president and that administration. You're going to want to get to the bottom of serious allegations. Are you prepared to say that that president can simply say, I'm going to fight all subpoenas? Are you prepared to say and accept that president saying, I have absolute immunity. You want me to come testify? Senator, you want me to come and testify? No, no. I have absolute immunity. You can subpoena me all you like. I'll see you in court. And when you get to court, I'm going to tell you, you can't see me in court. Are you prepared for that? That's what the future looks like. Don't think this is the last president if you allow this to happen. That's going to allow this to take place. Your time Mr. Is Justice, I yield back. I thank you. This is a vote to table the amendment. Chief Justice is asking for yeas and nays. 
Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to vote or change his or her vote? 53 yes votes and 47 no votes. The amendment has been tabled. Another amendment is being proposed. This amendment calls for the subpoena of the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget to produce documents related to the freezing of aid to Ukraine. Among those documents sought are communications among acting director Mick Mulvaney and other OMB officials about communications related to concerns raised by OMB employees about the withholding of aid and communications sent to the State Department. Here's House Impeachment Manager Jason Crow speaking in support of the amendment. Here we are talking of $391 million of taxpayer money intended to protect our national security by helping our strategic partner, Ukraine, fight against Vladimir Putin's Russia, an adversary of the United States. But the president could not carry out this scheme alone. He needed a lot of people to help him. And that's why we know as much about it as we do today. But there is much more to know. And that's what trials are for, to get the full picture. We know there's more because President Trump needed the Office of Management and Budget to figure out how to stop what should have been a routine release of funds mandated by Congress. A release of funds that was already underway. But the people in this chamber don't need me to tell you that because 87 of you in this room voted for those vital funds to support our partner, Ukraine. Witnesses before the House testified extensively about OMB's involvement in carrying out the whole. It was OMB that relayed the President's instructions and implemented the hold. And it was OMB that scrambled to justify the freeze. OMB has key documents that President Trump has refused to turn over to Congress. It is time to subpoena those documents. Based on what is known from the testimony and the few documents that have been obtained through public reporting and lawsuits, it's clear that the President is trying to hide this evidence because he is afraid of what it would show. The documents offer stark examples of the chaos and confusion that the president's scheme set off across our government. And they make clear the importance of the documents that are still being concealed by the president. We know that OMB has documents that re reveal that as early as June, the president was considering holding military aid for Ukraine. The president began questioning military aid to Ukraine after Congress appropriated and authorized the money. $250 million in DOD funds and $141 million in State Department funds. The amendment has been tabled. The minority leader proposes another amendment. If not, the yeas are 53 and the nays are 47. By this point, the, the Senate seemed to be looking for a way out. Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Majority Leader is recognized. The Majority Leader suggested that the Democrats consolidate their amendments. I would ask consent to ask the Democratic Leader, since there's a certain similarity to all these amendments, 
uh, whether he might be willing to enter into a uh, consent agreement to stack these votes. The minority leader, Schumer, insisted that he wouldn't, but that he was happy to wait until the morning. The bottom line is very simple. We believe witnesses and documents are extremely important and a compelling case has been made for them. We will have votes on all of those. After a break for what seemed like negotiations, there was no resolution. As I've said, was for a question. As I've said repeatedly, all of these amendments uh, under the resolution could be dealt with at the appropriate time. I suggest the absence of quorum. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. So, as we sign off at 10 p.m., they're on to the next Schumer Amendment, with no end in sight. We'll be summarizing what happens later tonight in tomorrow's episode. So far, it looks like Schumer will continue proposing amendments for documents and witnesses. They will keep being rejected, 53 to 47. And eventually, the Senate, by the same vote, will adopt McConnell's procedures. At least that's what we think will happen. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of The Impeachment. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer Ian Enright, supervising producer Megan Nadelsky, and creative producer Shar Dreyer. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, Ben Wittes, Margaret Taylor. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review. We'll see you tomorrow.
not the yeas are 53 and the nays are 47. By this point, the, the Senate seemed to be looking for a way out. Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Majority Leader is recognized. The Majority Leader suggested that the Democrats consolidate their amendments. I would ask consent to ask the Democratic Leader, since there's a certain similarity to all these amendments, uh, whether he might be willing to enter into a uh, consent agreement to stack these votes. The Minority Leader Schumer insisted that he wouldn't, but that he was happy to wait until the morning. The bottom line is very simple. We believe witnesses and documents are extremely important, and a compelling case has been made for them. We will have votes on all of those. After a break for what seemed like negotiations, there was no resolution. Consent was for a question. As I've said repeatedly.